welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from NPR, La Show, Democracy Now!, Tom Hartman, Randy Rhodes, and Countdown. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Renee Montaigne. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Congress and the White House are still deciding how they want to put accused terrorists on trial. The Supreme Court invalidated the Bush administration system. Among those lobbying now for a system based on the Code of Military Justice is a young lawyer who argued and won the case. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg has this profile. On the March morning, the Supreme Court was to hear the landmark case of Hamdan versus Rumsfeld. Neil Katyal opened his morning paper. On the right side was a teaser about the case and Hamdan case to be heard. And on the left side was strange cries emanating from Woodley Park Zoo. And they blamed it on the uh, baby panda. And I said, well, actually, that was me at 3 a.m. crying because I was about to face the Solicitor General of the United States. The 36-year-old Katyao, a professor at Georgetown Law School, was about to make his first argument in the Supreme Court, and his much-respected adversary, Paul Clement, was making his 34th. When Katyao joined the defense team as the chief appellate advocate three years earlier, no one had given him any chance of success, and few thought the Supreme Court would even agree to hear the case. But as Katyao's mentor, Yale law professor Akhil Amar puts it now, for this generation, Neil Katyal has become the Thurgood Marshall of his era. In June, the court, in a historic ruling on executive power, delivered a stinging defeat to the Bush administration, a defeat engineered by Katyal. Katyal is the son of Indian immigrants, his mother a pediatrician, his late father a chemical engineer. Although a Hindu, he went to Catholic schools, then Dartmouth undergrad, and Yale Law School, followed by a Supreme Court clerkship. As a law professor, Katyal has participated in writing briefs in some big cases, Bush versus Gore for one, but until this case, his life has largely been in academia, where he's often crossed ideological lines writing articles with some of the leading conservatives of the day. In the late 90s, Katyal took a two-year detour into government, where at age 28, he served as a top assistant to the deputy attorney general in the Clinton administration. One of his areas of responsibility was national security. A memo he wrote in 1998 was turned up later by the 9-11 Commission. Retired Colonel Len Hawley, the commission staff member who found the memo, calls it a rare and prescient gem. Looking at it through 9-11 eyes, it turned out to be a very remarkable analysis of the terrorist threat that called for a very assertive role for law enforcement and justice. There are many smart people in government, but few had the imagination to think about this threat as being as serious as it turned out to be. And he did. And he did. On September 11, 2001, Neil Katyal was out of government service, back teaching, when his wife woke him up with the news of the attack. The first words out of my mouth were, Bin Laden, you know, my heart sank, um, that it really fit the profile. But when the president announced plans for military tribunals, Katyal was appalled at what he saw as a blatantly illegal and unconstitutional system. The young law professor immediately volunteered his services to the military defense team, among them Lieutenant Commander Charles Swift. He was not the aloof academic that we expected. But almost everyone Katyal knew tried to discourage him. His mentor, Professor Amar, told him the case was, quote, a loser, and that it would harm his career, eroding his stellar national security credentials. And he said, 
you know, you're right about all of that. But I believe in the rule of law. I think what's going on is not lawful. And no one else is willing to take on this case. And so it's just my obligation as a lawyer. At home, the decision wasn't popular either, almost ruining a big family Thanksgiving dinner. My mom said, oh, you should tell Auntie so-and-so about what you've been doing. And so I told her, and her fork dropped and said, you're doing what? For Katya, the case was also a learning experience, his first exposure to the professionalism of the military legal system. And he eventually changed his mind on a key point, agreeing that the trial should be in regular military courts, not civilian courts, as he had previously argued. Commander Swift. He had to change. He had to accept a different argument after having been convinced in writing a law review article. And Neil Katyal did that. For a year and a half, Katyal worked with the military lawyers, positioning the issues so that the Supreme Court would grant review. Although he knew he would take a PR hit in a case involving Osama bin Laden's driver, Katyal chose Salim Hamdan's case as the vehicle because there was no evidence Hamdan had taken up arms. Finally, on November 6, 2004, Katyal met his client for the first time. Hamdan kicked everyone out of the room except for me and the translator, and I thought I was going to be yelled at. Instead, Hamdan gave Katyal a few prized sweets, a date, and some raisins. He literally gave me the only possessions he had and said, thank you for doing this. And um, and then he asked me, why are you doing this? I said, I'm doing it for you because um, my parents came from India to America because of a simple reason, because America doesn't treat people differently because of where they come from. We fought a civil war in part about the idea that all people are guaranteed certain rights, and chief among those is a right to a fair trial. For the next year and a half, Katya would be the major domo of the case, coordinating some 1,000 people working on it in one form or another, all of them wanting a piece of Katyal's time. No week went by without at least 3,500 emails showing up on Katyal's BlackBerry. He not only wrote the main brief, he arranged for some 40 separate friend-of-the-court briefs to be filed and coordinated so that different points were made in each one. Briefs not just from human rights groups, but from retired military brass, historians, even 400 British Parliament members. And when there was a congressional attempt to strip jurisdiction from the courts, Katyal launched a counter-campaign. A core group of 50 students and high-level lawyers of all political stripes were Katyal's war counsel. One of those, Supreme Court advocate Tom Goldstein, says the task facing Katyal was like herding cats in the middle of an avalanche. You've got a million different pieces of the puzzle in the middle of a torrential storm in which you can't see straight and you can't possibly hope to accomplish any one thing in a day and the clock is always ticking because there are a thousand people trying to get in touch with you. Preparing for the argument, Katyal made a list of the lawyers who intimidated him most all over the country and flew out to do dry-run arguments in front of them. In all, he did 15 moot court arguments. The issues were incredibly complex, ranging from military and constitutional law to international law. And Katyal had to resolve conflicting opinions on how to frame the arguments. By all accounts, he was invariably courteous, patient, and driven. Commander Swift. It is December 25th. I am on the way to meet my wife to have dinner with my parents. We have just walked into the restaurant when my cell phone starts buzzing. It is Neil. Neil has read a section of my argument and is no longer pleased with it. In fact, he feels it should be rewritten. Now would be a good time. 
In the end, Katyal defied the odds, winning on almost every major point. Even those on the other side are full of admiration for the way he conducted the case. Former Bush White House Associate Counsel Bradford Berenson. That's what makes his advocacy in this case heroic, is that he took a view of the law and he pushed it all the way through the court system. He rolled the boulder all the way up to the top of the hill and uh, got the highest court in the land to agree with him. Katyal's victory was not without some personal cost. For over a year, he slept no more than four hours a night as he tried to be husband, father, teacher, and Hamdan case honcho. And he spent $40,000 of his own money on the case. But he says... It's something I had to do, and, uh, and I feel, you know, enormously privileged to be able to do it. say there's now this debate spurred by the president who had a press conference this week and the uh, announced the text of the press conference uh, this way this debate is occurring because of uh, the supreme court's ruling that said that uh, we must conduct ourselves under the common article three of the geneva convention and that common article three says that you know there will be no outrages upon human dignity it's, it's, it's like it's very vague. What does that mean? Outrageous upon human. Yeah. What does that mean? Outrageous upon human dignity. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? What could that possibly mean? Of course, in a country that uh, has um, more reality TV on it every day, that would be a good question to ask whether, in fact, we know what an outrage on human dignity consists of these days. But the, um, while the Bush press conference got a lot of attention on the Sunday morning talk shows, the, to me, most salient part of it did not. Here are excerpts from uh, Bush's Friday press conference. Just see if you can uh, notice uh, the common thread that's running through it. What I'm proposing is that there be clarity in the law so that our professionals will have no doubt that that which they're doing is legal. And so the piece of legislation I sent up there uh, provides our professionals that which is needed to go forward. Now, the court said that you've got to live under Article 3 of the Geneva Convention, and the standards are so vague that our professionals won't be able to carry forward the program. It provides more clarity for our professionals. And uh, that's what these people expect. These are decent citizens. What I'm concerned about is if we don't do that, then it's very conceivable our professionals could be held to account based upon court decisions in other countries. I've spent a lot of time on this issue, as you can imagine. 
Uh, and I've talked to professionals. They're not going forward with the program. They're not going to, the professionals will not step up unless there's clarity in the law. That's why I asked Congress to pass legislation so that our professionals can go forward doing the duty we expect them to do. If our professionals don't have clear standards in the law, the program is not going to go forward. You can't ask a young professional on the front line of protecting this country to violate law. And I have the obligation to make sure that our professionals, who I would ask to go, uh, conduct interrogations to find out what might be happening or who might be coming uh, to this country, i got to give them the tools they need, and that is clear law. The point is that the program is not going to go forward if our professionals do not have clarity in the law, and the best way to provide clarity in the law is to make sure the Detainee Treatment Act is the crux. Well, okay, so what is, what's the common thread there, ladies and gentlemen? The introduction of a new branding element. You know this administration is very branding conscious. The professionals, a phrase that has never appeared before. Now, of course, when President Bush said that uh, the treatment of enemy uh, not, uh, combatants should be consistent with the Geneva Conventions, that wasn't vague. But now, it's, you know, the actual Geneva Conventions are too vague. But the professionals, this is a new branding element. Maybe it's just introducing something we'll be seeing this season. This fall. Professionalism has a new name. The Professionals. Two men, one woman, on the front lines of the dark side. Don Johnson is the veteran operative. I think we need some alternative procedures. Ice Trey is the streetwise rookie. Waterboarding, stress positions, dogs. It sounds like torture to me. Let's do it. Brittany Street is the improbably attractive woman. Wait a minute. Aren't we going over the line? Excuse me, Missy. But isn't that what we're here for? Who are you calling Missy? Amateurism was never like this. Tuesdays this fall. Or maybe Thursdays if Tuesdays are too tough. The thin blue line has just gotten a lot thinner. Do we just leave him in there? Cold and screaming? Yeah. I think it's our lunch break. If they didn't do it for the money... They wouldn't be the professionals. This fall on television, the internet, and your mobile phone. Just like the enemy, you can't escape the professionals. The program can't continue if the law isn't clear. Although the program can't be clear because it might not be lawful. Procedures can be awful, loud rock and a stone-cold waffle, just as long as they aren't vague. Forget the Hague. If you think our judges stink, the foreign ones are worse. Don't call the nurse. Don't call the hearse. Don't play the recessionals. These are the professionals. 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 Professionals, professionals. We never torture, so torture can't be what we're doing. If it's been illegal up to now, just stop the poo-pooing and make it legal. Why do you hate the eagle? What makes you so confused? John, you've been tortured, but the only thing we're torturing is reason. Colin, you've commanded legions in the regions next to Baghdad way back when. But you tortured the truth at the UN. 
If you're the good guys, what we do can't be bad. A new kind of war calls for a new kind of confessionals. Just ask the professionals. Professionals, 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 the professionals, 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 professionals. Some believe our military and intelligence personnel involved in capturing and questioning terrorists could now be at risk of prosecution under the War Crimes Act simply for doing their jobs in a thorough and professional way. President Bush yesterday, Barbara Olshansky joins us in the studio today, an attorney with the Center for Constitutional Rights, author of Secret Trials and Executions, Military Tribunals and the Threat to Democracy. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Barbara. Thank you for having me. Your response to President Bush's address. Um, you know, there are several. The, um, the president's speech came along with a series of documents, a Department of Defense directive, um, a new Army field manual that was revised, and this bill. Um, if you put them all together, it says some very interesting things. First, um, there's the admission, like you said, of um, the existence of secret prisons, which we knew and they have categorically denied all across Europe and all across the United States. But this idea of the CIA program, that language that the president used, 
we know that that program is um, a code word for the use of torture. And there's just no doubt about it, because we know how badly people were tortured in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and in Guantanamo. And we know that not just from detainees' testimony, but from the testimony of FBI officials, CIA officials. Lots of people have come forward. And the president, then, is asking the American public and Congress to approve a program of torture going forward. And when he says the United States doesn't torture and I never authorized torture, that is a very interesting wordplay, because all of the government's documents, all of the White House documents, go to this issue of redefining torture in a way that we don't define it in the United States or in the world. And that definition says torture only occurs when someone's at the risk of immediate full organ failure or death. So that's the word torture that the president is using. That's not our constitutional definition of torture. That's not the international definition of torture. And you know what? That's not the American people's definition of torture. And what about this whole issue of the War Crimes Act and uh, having Congress uh, revisit that? And well, that one is really on the same, in the same arena. It is retroactive immunity for everyone that engaged in torture. And, and the fact is that torture policy really specifically came down from the highest on the high. And in fact, the president in his speech yesterday admitted that, that he authorized it, that Rumsfeld put it into effect. And so now we know everyone did it. They said it. And, you know, that idea of being authorized from the top, well, we now know that that happened. And soldiers who follow a policy that violates the law, you know what? We don't exonerate them because that idea of they told me to do it, you know, that principle went out in Nuremberg in the Second World War when it was used by Nazi soldiers. We don't abide by that. No one in the world does. And that's what the president is asking for now, immunity for everyone who, who's going to say, my superior told me so. Why did this, all of this uh, come now, this uh, sort of a coordinated uh, uh, decision now to, to, to bring this to the forefront and to try to push it through Congress uh, at this stage I think um, that it is really fundamentally a political move. I think this is um, an administration that is very scared. There's an election coming up. I think the numbers for this president have been extremely low. I think there have been, you know, case after case in the Supreme Court where the justices, and these are conservative justices, have said, you can't do this. You don't get a blank check. You don't get to work outside the Constitution, outside the rule of law. And they've said it. They said it in Rasul v. Bush about challenging the detentions. They said it in Hamdi about giving someone the most basic due process. And they said it in Hamdan about what our due process requires in any kind of court that we hold. And so now you have a bill, this huge 86-page bill, that is an attempt to overrule every Supreme Court decision that's come down in the war on terror. In what way? Well, it, it, it says that the Detainee Treatment Act um, fulfills all of our requirements under the Geneva Conventions to outlaw cruel and inhuman treatment. But the Detainee Treatment Act prohibits anyone from enforcing its prohibition. We can't ever go into court to stop cruel treatment or torture. So the idea that it fulfills our obligations is just 
unbelievable nonsense. And, and then it says the Geneva Conventions can't ever be enforced by an individual in court. Our courts have never said that. And no country around the world has ever said that. You know, if we can't go into court to enforce what are individual rights, right? Your right to a trial, your right not to be brutally treated, all of those are individual rights. If we say people can't go into court to enforce them, what's going to happen to our soldiers in every other country where they are captured? They don't get to invoke those protections? How, how blind could this administration be to the effects on our own guys everywhere they're fighting? Now, in the, in the conversation we had before we went on the air, you mentioned also that the bill uh, addresses this whole issue of whether American citizens can be held as enemy combatants uh, and, and put in military tribunals versus being tried in regular American courts. Yeah, and this was something that really we've had um, a number of conversations about, you know, with um, people on the Hill, some people in the White House. Um, about the fact that an uh, uh, administration bill that was leaked, you know, included the word people instead of the word aliens. Um, because the president's November 11th, no, military, November 13th military order in 2001 said non-citizens. Well, now the language says an, an, off, an unlawful enemy combatant can be any individual. And it's very clear that that means Americans. It can mean anyone in the world. There is no exclusion, you know, for Americans. And the language of who can be an enemy combatant has been tremendously expanded. So it could be, you know, not only al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations, but other associated forces and just others who are unnamed. And it's any hostile act, not necessarily a military act. Am I hostile by talking about what's wrong with this, by sitting here with you? How, how are we going to know that? And then I end up in Guantanamo in a military commission where the death penalty can result? This is astounding stuff. The legislation that President Bush is proposing um, would limit the ability of prisoners to access all evidence. Uh, the Republicans who are challenging the proposal are um, very significant. I mean, you've got John McCain, mm -hmm. who is a prisoner of war himself. You've got Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, a former military lawyer, still serving in the Air National Guard as a reserve judge, and Senator John Warner of Virginia, mm -hmm. chair of the Armed Services Committee. Yeah, I think, um, you know, these are people that um, are so familiar with our military justice system that um, they should know, and I think what they're, you know, what they're saying means they do know that we have an existing military justice system that's worked for more than 50 years. It's incredibly effective. It's, it is a um, well thought out, well established, well ruled, you know, system that um, everyone believes in in the military, and, there, and people can't see any reason for permitting the president this new power to create a system wholly outside of everyone else, an entire new universe with new words that, and new terms and new offenses that are outside the law and that he's just fabricated. At the same time, the military held a news conference, the Pentagon, talking about uh, new rules. What are they? Well, these... Um, you know, there are many more rules in here than were spelled out before. So they talk about some of the offenses for the first time. Because in the first, in the first go-around, 
no offenses were set forth. So you had no idea what you would be tried for. And in fact, you'd be designated for a military trial. And, you know, a year later, they'd say, um, we think you did A, B, and C. So they, you know, sort of went back and crafted the crime <laughs> based on what they thought you did. Um, now there are some crimes that are specified in the bill. The problem is there are many crimes that are not recognizable in the laws of war. And so we're still doing that, creating things out of whole cloth. When we have a military justice system that specifies those crimes, what are the crimes that people commit when they're in the military? And for people that are not military soldiers, for civilians, we, we know what we can accuse them of. Every, every kind of regular criminal act, including things, uh, war crimes, including genocide. All, we can go after terrorists for all of those things. And this is that fundamental divide that we come to again, which is, you know, the criminal justice system being a perfectly valid system to try terrorists. And in the UK, what happened recently in London just shows that. They did an investigation. They stopped anything before it happened. Those people are able to be tried. There's nothing that is fundamentally tricky about this. What's tricky is when we hold people in indefinite detention and torture them. Barbara Oshansky, I want to thank you very much for joining us with the Center for Constitutional Rights, an attorney who is author of the book Secret Trials and Executions, Military Tribunals and the Threat to Democracy, also co-author of The Case for Impeachment, the legal argument for removing President George W. Bush from office. We passed upon the stairs, Mozan Beg is is with us on the line, sir. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I have to say, you are the first uh, detainee at Guantanamo Bay I have ever spoken with. It's it's a it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Your your background, uh, I, I found this fascinating. Uh, you're a second generation British citizen, raised by a banker father in Birmingham, England. You attended a Jewish day school as a child. Uh, and turned increasingly to your Muslim faith in your early 20s, opened a Muslim bookstore in your hometown, uh, traveled to Bosnia and again to the Middle East to aid in relief efforts and do charitable work in war-torn Afghanistan. How then did you end up in uh, Guantanamo Bay and Bagram? Oh, my goodness. Uh, That's a whole story in itself. But um, the short of it is that uh, in 2001, uh, I and my, my family, my wife and children, had decided... Uh, to move to Afghanistan for a short-term project that we'd begun in the United Kingdom, which was to build a school for girls in, in an area where the Taliban didn't allow female education, and also to build wells uh, in some of the drought-stricken regions of the northwest, uh, uh, which is what we did in uh, June of 2001. So in regard uh, to building a school for girls, you were doing exactly the opposite of what bin Laden would have approved of. 
Um, I don't know whether it's so much Bin Laden as the Taliban. Certainly the Taliban were the ones who had said that there was no women's education around, uh, allowed at the time, which I right. think that, that that was the case in relation to a lot of the non-Muslim organizations who were who were trying to do that but, job. But there. isn't that also considered consistent with Wahhabism? Um, no, I don't think so, because in Saudi Arabia is a Wahhabi state, and, and there you've got universities for, for, for women and schools and colleges, so I think that, that's, not, that's not correct. Okay, I stand corrected. Thank you for, for helping to educate me here. Um, so you were telling your story. Um, so I think that uh, as, as what happened is that eventually when, when the September 11th attacks did take place, um, I evacuated eventually after when the United States of America bombed, uh, and me and my family and I had to evacuate to Pakistan where I have... Uh, dual nationality and uh, family and relatives. So we stayed there for a couple of months helping other refugees. And during that time, um, on the 31st of January 2002, uh, was when I received a knock at my door at midnight and uh, was faced with several people pointing guns at me and uh, electric stun guns too, who shackled me, pushed me to the ground, put a hood over my head, and dragged me into the back of a 4x4 and carried me away. Were you told what the charges were against you? No, um, charges and, and arrest and those sort of that sort of terminology didn't really exist. It was a it was a pure kidnap. Um, one of the things that I did see was an American, uh, quite obviously, who, which I recognised from his uh, accent, when he produced a pair of handcuffs and said that this is uh, from the wives of one of the victims of September 11th for me, given to me in order for me to catch the culprits, and then he proceeded to put them on me, as if to say that I was somehow responsible for that. But I mean there was. It was Kafkaesque, but very frightening because um, I couldn't have believed that this was the beginning of a three-year ordeal, which was going to be the, the greatest test of my life. Yeah, by Kafkaesque, I assume you're referring to his short story, The Prisoner. Absolutely, yes. Uh, um, you know, it's being in a, in a situation where you just don't believe what's happening to you um, can happen, and, and yet exactly that is. That is the reality of your of your manifest. Yeah, I, I would recommend all of our listeners re, uh, read that that short story by Franz Kafka. In in the prisoner, however, as I recall, it's been twenty five thirty years since I read it, but my recollection is that the prisoner eventually breaks down and uh, begins uh, turning in those around him. What was your experience? Well, yeah, that did happen to me on, on occasion. Of course, it was uh, after several years in Guantanamo and elsewhere. Uh, where you, you feel that you're beginning to lose the fight against desperation and hopelessness. Um, I certainly uh, had several anxiety attacks in which I punched the walls and kicked them and screamed and cried because I didn't know when, if I was going to ever going to be uh, released from there, if I was ever going to see my family again, what the charges against were me, what is it that I had done so badly to the United States in, which caused them to treat me in this way, how had I harmed them uh, for, for them to harm me in this way. I didn't understand and that was probably the hardest thing to, to, to face, other than um, the, the intermittent or sporadic bouts of, of physical abuse that I had to face. Now, according to George W. Bush, just last week, he said, we do not torture prisoners. Does, that, does your experience, we're talking with, uh, with uh, Mozambique, who is the author of a new book, Enemy Combatant, My Imprisonment at Guantanamo, Bagram, and Kandahar, an actual uh, detainee or whatever the uh, you know in in our various concentration camps who has now been released and and is speaking out and has written a brilliant brilliant book which you must buy enemy combatant by uh, Mozambique uh, is it it was your experience consistent with George Bush's statement this week or last week that the United States does not 
participate in or condone the torture of the people who have been arrested in our name? Well, there, there are two aspects to this. The first one I will tell you that when I was held in Bagram, um, that I was told by the CIA that, that another man had been seated just where I was only a few weeks earlier. Now, this man was said to be an, a high-ranking al-Qaeda catch, who they then sent to Egypt to be tortured under the auspices of the, of the CIA. And they extracted a confession from him saying that he was working, his organization was working to obtain weapons of mass destruction from Saddam Hussein. Now, that was used as an, as an evidence to enter Iraq and to begin the war there. It's, of course, found to be that it was set on, uh, under torture, under duress, and um, it, it caused the deaths and destruction of the whole of the people of Iraq and, and indeed, many U.S. soldiers. But the second part, point, point to this is that uh, President Bush may say, may in fact believe that he doesn't condone the use of torture. All that he does do is to redefine its, its, its uh, terminology so that um, we, are, we hear about waterboarding, we hear about people ha being left naked, uh, people being kicked or punched, or perhaps having your arm twisted but not really having it taken out of its socket. Those sorts of things uh, are the reinterpretation of torture. And of course, if he says, yeah, well, the real what we mean by torture is uh, pulling out fingernails and, and electrocutions and, and things like that. Yeah, we don't do that, but we'll do the other things. I think that there's a, a, a deliberate attempt to, to redefine its, its meaning. Was that, sir, the experience that you had or that you saw around you or both? I think in the worst cases, the worst instances that I saw, um, particularly in one that's been widely reported in the United States, is the death of a man called Mr. Dilawa. <coughs> and he was in my cell, tied with his hands above his head and a hood placed over it. They administered him, administered to him what they call a peroneal strike, which is a strike, a sort of a Thai boxing style strike uh, to the thigh. He had a hundred strikes uh, delivered to him on his thigh, which caused his blood to, to stop flowing properly and, and caused his, his death, um, which was proved to me by U.S. interrogators, internal interrogators, who a year and a half later showed me the pictures of his body and asked me to identify the soldiers that I feel were responsible. So it was part of a system that had trickled down in which Donald Rumsfeld had said that I stand uh, in my duty for eight hours a day. Why can't these detainees stand for much more, which obviously was alluding to uh, putting detainees in stress positions and, uh, and forcing them to stand, which he didn't mention, of course, was that they were hooded and shackled at the same time when they were standing. Yeah, yeah. and it was much more than eight hours, and he's walking around. Uh, the, the, the parallels are, it's insane to draw such parallels. Slip inside the eye of your mind Don't you know you might find A better place to play who you think are like the highest value terror targets, we must torture them so the ticking time bomb can go off. I got news for you. If there was a ticking time bomb in our CIA or our FBI or any of our people who are charged with 
hunting down these for real terrorists who work every day to decode, who work every day to trace and track and do whatever it is, you know, that keeps us safe at night. First of all, if if it were me, if, if somebody called me and said, I got a terrorist here who's got information that there's a ticking nuclear bomb that is set to go off in New York City, okay, uh, and we need somebody to torture them. I think we pretty much all would agree that if we got that call, we would personally do it. But we would also personally then go to court and be judged for doing it. And likely, if we produced real intelligence that really did stop a terrorist attack like that, we would be told, good job, well done, here's a medal for your fabulous uh, service to this nation. But you don't change international law and you don't change national law so that low-ranking reservists, as we saw in Abu Ghraib, so that contractors with no experience in interrogations or CIA who are uh, currently not wanting to do this kind of work because they say that it doesn't produce the kind of intelligence you think it does, that really what it gets is somebody saying any damn thing just to make the bone-breaking stop or just to make the pain stop, just so that you'll take the electrodes off their penis, just so that you will stop uh, you know, holding them in a high-stress position with handcuffs and let them go to the bathroom in private. They'll say anything. And then you got to trace down these fake leads, which takes more time. And they've produced zero, zero prosecutions. And the reason is either because the people they've tortured don't know anything, or they can't prosecute the people they've tortured because you can't use tortured testimony in a court of law. Also, it sets a very bad example. America, once it, got, it already went down this road, and you've seen what it did in Iraq, you see that people were flipped out. I mean, we, we took Saddam's most notorious torture prison and used it for notorious torture. So what's the difference between us and Saddam Hussein? I'm sorry, I'm missing the, uh, the, the specific difference. I don't get it. I really don't. What did Iraq ever do to us? That we would take their people... And, in, and, and incarcerate them, torture them, then release them, and now we've made new terrorists. I mean, the Bush administration can't catch a fish. They can't catch a cold. They can't catch uh, uh, the, the avian flu, but they can certainly uh, torture people so that, what, you release them and now they're a terrorist? Before they were a baker, before they were uh, a pilot, before they were uh, an architect in Iraq. Now they're a terrorist. It makes no sense to do this. And I went back and looked at all the old articles. And, you know, not only do you find the articles that say that there are 14,000 people in this kind of care. 14,000 people are in our custody. No one knows where they are. Now they say, oh, we're going to close down the secret prison. We'll bring them to Gitmo. And I'm thinking, how are you going to put 14,000 people in Gitmo? Oh, well, Halliburton just built a new prison.
And as for those proposed new rules for the treatment of terror suspects, congressional opposition continues, as does talk of a compromise, as does just tonight talk of a filibuster. While Senators McCain, Warner, and Graham are still firmly opposed to redefining those standards within common Article Three of the Geneva Conventions, they're talking about compromises that would protect interrogators from legal sanctions and permit the use of classified material and coerced testimony in trials of terror suspects. Now Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist says McCain and company do not have a filibuster-proof majority to pass their version of a detainee bill through the entire Senate. You heard it, the lead Republican in the Senate threatening to block or filibuster a bill about torture of prisoners sponsored by one senator who was a tortured prisoner and another who is still a reserve judge in the military justice system. Let's check the latest on the legal end of all this with Jonathan Turley, constitutional law professor at George Washington University. Jonathan, good evening again. Hi. Secretary Powell, in defending his recent criticism of the administration, also said in the Washington Post, if you look, just look at how we are perceived in the world and the kind of criticism we have taken over Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, and renditions, whether we believe it or not, people are now starting to question whether we're following our own high standards. Do you think that on this issue, did, did Powell just raise the stakes again? Well, I think the most important thing is how uncharacteristic this is for Powell. I mean, he is the ultimate conservative player, the team player. This is so much not like him. And I think that what motivates someone like Powell to come out like this uh, is when he believes there's a real, clear, and present danger to the country. I mean, people don't realize that whatever benefits this administration may think it gets from torture, the costs are enormous. This is a very dangerous neighborhood to walk alone. And and I think what Powell is saying is that we need these people. We need allies uh, if we're going to win this war. And we've become the greatest recruitment tool for terrorist organizations. And we, never, we haven't even addressed, and we won't for time's sake now, the study of, after study that indicates that torture presents falsely positive information. People will say anything they, they, they think the torturer wants to hear. But about, again the layout between Bush and McCain. One question being asked a lot that I have not heard definitively answered anywhere, is there really a difference between what the president has proposed on this and the McCain-Warner-Graham uh, version? Are they, aren't they both torture? Aren't they both redefining the Geneva Conventions to some degree? Well, you've really hit, I think, the most salient aspect of this. That is, whatever comes out of a compromise, it does seem to be an effort to redefine Geneva Convention, because otherwise, why are you doing this? You don't need to redefine the Geneva Convention. You don't have to do anything with it. It's a treaty. We're a signatory. We've never had to do this before. We've gotten along just fine, as has the world, with the language of the Geneva Convention. If we make any effort at all to try to redefine it or to tweak it or to amplify it, the world will see that as our effort to lawyer the Geneva Convention to try to create some type of loophole or excuse for our conduct. You'll remember Mr. Gonzalez's uh, description of this five years ago as quaint, the Geneva Conventions, or portions of it right. uh, to some degree. Last Friday here, you were telling us that some of the detainees from the secret CIA cells, when moved to Guantanamo, might have the opportunity in the immediate future to talk to the Red Cross about their own interrogations. Is there anything more on the possibility that, that, that that's going to happen, and that which might explain the president's anger and his rush over this as having more to do with what his administration has already sanctioned and not about what is yet to come? It has all the indications that that is exactly what is happening. The administration for years has conspicuously attempted to get things like waterboarding approved as non-torture. Waterboarding, when you convince someone they're going to drown, by drowning them, and at least to the point of uh, death. 
and waterboarding is defined as torture around the world. Now, obviously, the administration has not gotten that thus far. But there is a strong suspicion that we have indeed been engaging in torture. Remember, some of these people were captured when the White House had signed a memo that defined non-torture as anything short of organ failure, that they believed that as long as they didn't cause organ failure or death, they were not engaged in torture. That shocked the world. So what has happened in the past, in our name, has many of us wondering. But there is a feeling, and I am one of those people that has it, that we are about to hear some accounts coming out that our president may have ordered American personnel to become torturers. And that is so serious, it is almost beyond definition. How serious would that be for the president? Are there elements of the Constitution that refer to international treaties that make an American president violating international agreements like that liable to or subject to uh, criminal action within this country, let alone internationally? It is a violation of both domestic and international law. But more importantly, torture is immoral under every major religion that you cannot fight a moral war with immoral means. And if we're ready to embrace immoral means, if that's how we're going to fight this war, then we have lost. And no one will come to our aid. We will be alone. And that's what happens when you become, in the view of many, an enemy to the rule of law. And we cannot afford that to happen. Constitutional law expert Jonathan Turley also providing some philosophical wisdom, I think, tonight. Seriously, many thanks for your time, sir. Thanks, Keith. Stop that now. work and every single solitary JAG officer, military field officer has said, oh for God's sake, stop torturing people. They're coming out of jail. Uh, they went in being bakers and owning gas stations and they came out terrorists. What's wrong with you people? Cut the crap. But they ignored them and they went ahead and tortured. Iraqis, who you loved so much you had to liberate them. You loved them. You dug an Iraqi. And now uh, they're, they're, they're trying to cover their behinds because it's prosecutable what the Bush administration has done, which is why the Bush administration is seeking to change the law retroactively. We don't have ex post facto laws in the United States because that would mean that you could do something today that is illegal and if you won, you know, a favor among the legislators and they said what you did today, like gouge somebody's eyes out, uh, is perfectly legal now, the day you gouge somebody's eyes out, it wasn't legal and so... <laughs> You're supposed to obey the laws as they are today. Bush wants a retroactive law so that Donald Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, who was his deputy, uh, Bush and Cheney, who also said, let's torture, 
won't be charged with crimes. Crimes. That's why they're doing this. That's why it's so important to get this done before the election on November 7th. Because come the election, November 7th, if Democrats take over the House, that's where articles of impeachment are originating. At the Judiciary Committee, that's where they come from. Thanks for listening, everybody. So yesterday, I had just finished putting together the show that you just listened to, and I uh, I sat down, I was gonna, you know, I recorded, you know, my little speech at the end, I, you know, had everything set up, I had it just perfect, and I thought, boy, I sure don't want to lose this now, so before I tell it to start processing and, you know, make it into a podcast, I better save it. So I clicked save, as you would do in such a situation, and that caused my computer to freeze. So I thought to myself, well, I wonder if it saved everything and then froze, or if it lost everything while trying to save. And of course, the latter was true. And then I thought to myself, well, I only have four shows lined up for this week, as it is. So, I guess today's as good as any to not have a podcast. So, although I declared previously that the show was completely back, full strength, and then immediately failed to get out another show as I normally would on a, you know, daily or nearly five days a week basis, um, that was exactly the reason. So, what I had just finished saying yesterday, I just told a little story about how I'm actually uh, celebrating the end of my three-week hiatus from the show by taking a week-long vacation. Those They don't actually have anything to do with each other. I just happen to be on a week-long vacation. I'm not at work this week. And right now, I'm even in uh, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee at the moment. So, as if the logistics of putting this show together wasn't chaotic enough, uh, you know, just on its own is, you know, a little tricky sometimes. Now, with people emailing me clips all the time, which is fantastic, that's what's driving the show now, and then you throw into the mix, uh, going across the country, and um, depriving yourself of any kind of regular or stable internet connection is, um, I mean, you're just asking for trouble. I mean, as a podcaster, that's about the worst thing you can do. So, of course, that's what I did, and of course... The only trouble I've had so far is my computer freezing, having nothing to do with the internet. So uh, if uh, if there are any more hiccups in the system, uh, maybe cut me a little slack at least for this week, and uh, and we'll keep things going strong. Uh, and I just wanted to mention I actually have uh, I you know I've been kind of waffling on this for a long time, and I I think I've decided that I am actually going to go to the podcast expo i don't think i've even talked about it on the show at all but uh, this weekend as in 
September 29th and 30th, uh, Friday and Saturday, there's a podcast expo going on it on, uh, in Ontario, California at the Ontario Convention Center. So if you're interested in uh, going down there, you can go check it out. Uh, it's free. You know, most of it is free. Uh, all, I mean, the interesting stuff, if you're just a listener, then the interesting stuff is free. And um, so, you know, if, you, if you're heading down, Maybe drop me a line and, uh, you know, I'm not setting up a booth or anything like that, like, uh, like some podcasters are, but, uh, drop me a line. Maybe we'll meet up and, and have a, a drink or something. So, uh, until, uh, until tomorrow or the next time I'm, uh, <laughs> until the next time I successfully put a show together, uh, I will talk to you uh, again soon. Have a good one, everybody. Up on a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor What could Democrats be doing differently from what they're doing now in order to win? That is the question we answer on the Underdog Democrat podcast. Find us on the web at underdogdemocrat.com or run a search on iTunes for Underdog Democrat. Tactics and strategies for the Democratic Party.